first major tournament, and Rory Smith is wearing glasses. Rory Smith has not oh. had very much sleep. Rory oh. Smith has decided that he has come to the end of his season. Oh yeah, my my for me. You got the, you got the look of Jeff Goldblum today, <laughs> if you don't mind me saying, but a good-looking Jeff Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum's very good-looking. He's not as good-looking as you, though, is he? If you had to, if you had to lay it on the, he's not really. Is it Jeff Goldblum at the start of the fly or at the end of the fly? <laughs> as midway, the fly. Mid, midway through the transition, <laughs> when the ear comes off. Did you mm. force your way into the press box? Did you not have a ticket, but back yeah. your way in, elbowing stewards as you went? Right in front of us. Oh. There were about 40, 40 kids, largely basically kids, who were all trying to charge in with about forty-five minutes to go before kickoff, and it just struck me that that's very that that. I mean, I'm no bunker, but that's poor technique. Because they ran in, and there's Josh Robinson who, from the Wall Street Journal who was sitting next to me, said they ran in and immediately took their seats. And that is, that is the first sign that you do not have a ticket. Just the way that you come into a stadium when you've got a ticket. <laughs> like right on that, the aisle. <laughs> yeah. It's like you, you're, you're kind of checking the ticket, seeing which, which aisle it is, which row it is, which seat it is. You don't just run in at pace and then sit down and be like, yeah, these are our seats. Mm. It never works like that. No one's that good at finding their seats. <laughs> they are um, incredibly familiar with the layout of Wembley. <laughs> yeah, no, just don't know it really well. But also I thought like, would you, again, not a bunker, but would your technique not have been that you hung around in the concourse? for as long as possible. And then just before kickoff, you kind of meandered out into the stadium, sort of whistling, looking as though you were kind of looking for somebody and then just, yeah, oh, the match has started, I better stay here. You've been in and out a couple of times, you know, been but to the, the toilet, yeah. had a burger. But the other thing was- Going back to the, my seat rather than going to it for the first time. The, and I suspect this was, this was, it was a serious situation what happened last night. It was, really, it was genuinely really bad. It was a, it was, there was a lot of people very upset, a lot of kids quite frightened. So we shouldn't make light of it. But there was this one group of lads who came in and sat together, three of them. If you're bunking in, you're not getting three seats together, lads. Come on, be serious. <laughs> Spread out a bit. It's like they hadn't put any thought. They just kind of just forced their way in. And yeah. they just hadn't really, it's like how I behave when I go and see a Shakespeare show. I act like I should be there. So there's certain things you've got to do, you know, mooch about, have a G&T, wander the aisles. Don't just go and sit down. That's the last it, thing you do, isn't it? Exactly. Kid people on. Exactly. You've got to play the part. They, they, I just think yes. that we, we, we do have a problem in this country with the, like, with the dedication levels of our ticketless fans. Mm. <laughs> Petty criminals need to make more of an effort. But then mm. the one story I heard was there another group about, and it may well be the group, the 40 or so that was being talked about a lot at the time. They, they, they barged in past a steward and there was just one of them for about the 40 who realised that this, is, this was the, the best chance to do it. And then they, they literally, at the, at the moment that they went past the steward, they spread like somebody had thrown ink on, hmm. on the wall <laughs> as, if, as if they genuinely were Navy SEALs and they were spreading <laughs> out. Just, it was, so they were a little bit better planned, at least. Even if I think they, they were, were actual SEALs rather than idiots. Navy SEALs. They weren't thinking that deeply. <laughs> I, think ah. have, I think you have to give credit to Wembley and the Met for policing it so badly and being so badly organised that all of this happened in, right in front of the press box. Because as, as you will know from Wembley Way, you are basically funnelled from Wembley Park to the VIP entrance. And the media entrance is just to the right of the VIP entrance. But I think, basically, the press box is directly below the actual VIP area. Like, if you... Yeah. The press box is on the lower tier, and I think the actual VIP area, where, where your Beckhams, your Cruises, your Infantinos are, they are, they're kind of on the middle level. Club Wembley. 
which meant that obviously when when they stormed the gates, it was the gates in front of it was right at the front of the stadium. They didn't go round looking for different entrance points. They just stormed, they stormed the gates right at the front, which meant that they had the common decency of committing their petty crim- criminality without the, the journalists actually having to move and do any work, very which was just it? very yeah. thoughtful of them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am chronicling the events as they take place just in front of me. I mean, I was doing it whilst eating. It was amazing. <laughs> this is Set Beast Money, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Andy Hinchcliffe, who is the original fan of Lee Child's writing. Stephen Wyeth, who is also now a fan of Lee Child's writing. And Rory Smith, no. who despite not being a fan of Lee Child's writing, knows where this is going, adopted one of the thriller writer's favourite literary techniques in his most recent newsletter. And I quote... And Kane was sliding on his knees and his teammates were enveloping him and Wembley was melting above him and around him. Very childish, yes. that. Very childish, that. How would you plead, Mr. Rory Smith? I don't think Lee Child owns a rhetorical device. It depends on, on where you've, Alex, where you've encountered that rhetorical device, uh, device more than anywhere else in your I think, experience. I think I would claim that I invented it. Did, did Harry Kane headbutt any bouncers or any ne'er-do-wells or was there anything like that? Did he have an Uzi 9mm? Harry Kane actually could have been could have done with, with, with headbutting some ne'er-do-wells on, on Sunday night, but he, he stepped, you know, <laughs> was conspicuous by his absence, wasn't he? The food is um, currently being eaten by Rory, but actually that's not the food of the podcast. No, the food is being eaten by... The food is the food of the podcast. The food is being eaten by Rory deliberately, not by accident. I'm not just, I'm not just caught myself eating. Oh, hello oh, there. Hello, didn't realise you were coming. I, at half-time uh, at Wembley on Sunday night, which is, as we, as we, as we are recording, last night, uh, was hollered at by a man who wanted a selfie, which doesn't happen to me very often. So I, despite, wow. the, fact that, despite the fact that I had to I had to, Who did write, you think you were? Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> <laughs> And anyway, he called me over, and I, you know, I, I don't like to disappoint the public, mainly because I don't have much of a public, and also it was quite a threatening environment, so I didn't want there to be any sort of riot. And um... that, that would that would not have been the priority. What do I want most out of this? A ticket for something that I don't have a ticket for, or a selfie with Rory Smith? I'm, I'm not saying that they broke in to get selfies with me. I'm just saying that once they were in there, they thought, Make well, I might, I might as well. Did you say I only do selfies for people with a ticket on the official UEFA Euro 2020? <laughs> Please show me your vaccination status. The, um, no, it was a lovely man called Daniel, who's a listener, and who wanted to say hello, and it was, it was much appreciated, and he said some very nice things about, about the podcast, including where are the other three? And, and I, I just sort of thought, well, is it, it's irrelevant, really. <laughs> Who cares where the other three are? We're very not the Beatles. Su- very much the supporting cast. Do you know what I mean? You don't. <laughs> it's me and three others. It's not <laughs> Just, a foursome, is it? Should have been anywhere. Mm. The, anyway, it's Lord Daniel, and he, the, the one the one criticism he made was that we don't ever have any food anymore because we're never together. So we used to we used to um, to discuss the, the food we were eating. I think we you know we were we were kind of quite eloquent about food and how much we liked eating it and what the flavours were. Um, so I am eating some flatbreads with some cured ham. And some manchado cheese that has been not only cured by the people who make manchado, but cured by sitting in my fridge for about three weeks. Uh, and that is what I'm eating. I'm eating for Daniel. Uh, thank you. If you would uh, like like us to make more effort, I don't know. Send us send us food, and we'll eat it. Uh, the football is chinch. Do you know what we're talking about today? 
Uh, I think it's hot food and takeaways. Is that right? <laughs> that is very good. This one is indeed simple. The Euro, the Euros, the European Championship, the definitely not European Championships. Our hot takes and takeaways brand gets an international upgrade. Uh, that is to come. You'll notice the paucity of script because I wrote it before uh, the final last night, so didn't want to commit myself too much. Um, you can get in touch with the podcast. Setpiecemenu at gmail.com is our email address. You can find us on Twitter, on YouTube and on Facebook as well. We start with this email from Ben Wilson. Uh, which comes in response to our discussion of England fans booing opposition national anthems, which we had during the correspondence section of the show last week. Um, you will know probably that the FA have been fined after England fans did it prior to the semi-final against Denmark, which is a bit strange, seeing they've done it for the other games too, and actually maybe even more loudly. Uh, and before the final, Gareth Southgate actually asked supporters to not boo the Italy anthem. Now, Rory, I don't know what your experience was uh, actually there, but from the televisual experience that I had, they didn't boo it on account of the fact that the Italian national anthem is so long that I think that even if they had tried to boo it at the beginning, they would have got tired and given up. I, I have a confession to make. I mistimed my pre-match toilet pit stop and missed the start of the Italian national anthem. So I don't know if there was any booing then, um, but there was no booing during the, the meat of the, what the Italians call il carne della canzone. <laughs> so no, I don't think they booed it. I think, I think Gareth Southgate got through, got through to, okay. to the nation. So it's Southgate's words, not, not the length of the, of the anthem, which is a three-part anthem, intro, okay. verse, another verse. Well, also maybe they didn't boo because it's an absolute banger. Yes, they wanted to, they, they, never mind football's coming home, they wanted to hear that one. Um, now, you'll remember our conversation centred around the Germany game in particular, and Ben's email is entitled, In Defence of the Ten German Bombers Song. So here we go from Ben. Dear four friends, talking football over Zoom and occasionally referencing some food that one of you may or may not have eaten. Firstly, I thoroughly enjoy your insightful and articulate discussions on the pod. I believe you have to start with this sort of compliment when emailing podcasts, but genuinely... I mean it. Only us, Ben. Other podcasts are not nearly as insecure. Uh, I'm writing in response to last week's brilliant episode in which you discussed, amongst other things, the behaviour of England fans and the booing of national anthems. I'm going to try and word this email very carefully, for fear of not making myself clear, because I consider myself to be very socially liberal and progressive in my political views, but I disagree with the criticism of England football fans that you discussed last week, even though people with whom I usually find myself agreeing wholeheartedly have very different opinions on this subject to me. One of you said last week that we all know why the 10 German Bombers song is so inappropriate and wrong. Well, I'm afraid I don't really know why that song is so wrong. It seems to be a given in my footballing social circles and the football media that I consume that this song is a disgraceful one that should not be sung. But I've never had it explained why. From my perspective, there is plenty of English history for us to all be embarrassed about. If, for example, England fans were to be singing about our colonial past or the empire, then I would feel incredibly uncomfortable about that. But Britain winning the Battle of Britain and helping to defeat the Nazis is one of the few parts of English history that I feel proud of and think we have a right to celebrate and commemorate. I don't see the singing of songs about the Second World War as any different to Scotland singing Flower of Scotland and referencing their pride at historic victories against the English. Every country has moments from history that they sing about at national events without bothering to delve into the nuances or complexities of them. But I've never quite understood why England fans get it in the neck for this and no one else seems to. Secondly, I really found it hard to understand your point on how you found it understandable when opposition countries boo God Save the Queen, but thought it was inappropriate of England fans to boo the German national anthem. Within the space of two minutes, you said that England and Britain's historic mistreatment of other countries meant that booing the, uh, God Save the Queen is an understandable geopolitical statement, and said that British people or English fans booing the German national anthem for their country's historic wrongs is inappropriate. This seemed a little hypocritical to me. To clarify, I think the booing of any national anthem is pathetic and disrespectful, but I think if, as one of you suggested last week, 
week that you think booing God Save the Queen is understandable, then surely logically you also have to excuse England fans booing opposing national anthems. Or is it perhaps that when opposition fans boo God Save the Queen, they are all doing it from a place of genuine political protest or as a reminder of Britain's historic and continued wrongdoings on the global political stage. But when England fans boo, it is from a place of nationalistic idiocy. I always feel very defensive of England fans as I believe that they are held to a higher standard than much of the rest of our society and in comparison to other groups of fans. If England fans, as Scotland fans did a few weeks ago, broke lockdown regulations to come to London to be caught on camera flashing in public and setting off fireworks in train stations, then there would have been national uproar and questions in Parliament. But Scotland fans were talked about in the warmest of terms for the same behaviour. In all this talk of booing, you missed the key point in all of this, which is that God Save the Queen is such a rubbish national anthem and we are in desperate need of a new one. But please, God, don't let it be sweet Caroline. Keep up the fantastic work. That's from Ben. So Ben is challenging some of the points we made last week. I open it to the floor. That's a really good email. It's a re- and it's a really thoughtful one. Um, although at the end, th- there was some flashing from England fans in the last 24 hours before we re- record, including one, f- one flare being inserted. <laughs> into yeah, it, was, to... it was flares and flashing. It wasn't <laughs> flashing in isolation. To be fair, I'm, I'm not, I don't know a lot about flares, but I do not believe that is the correct safety procedure. <laughs> <laughs> does, it, does it have some sort of sticker on the, the packaging for the flare? Please it's... be careful not to insert anally. Yes, well, if, if they don't, then you have to say that's the manufacturer's fault. <laughs> I think Jackass, Jackass has a lot to answer for. Um, I think, so maybe we garbled a point. I think that, and I think it was me that said it, I can understand why the Welsh and the Scots might, blue, might boo and the Irish might boo God Save the Queen. That is three near neighbours who have various historic grudges against the English, most of them completely legitimate, sort of kicking upwards to an extent, you know, the dominant power in the union and the nation that they feel kind of uh, doesn't heed their needs as much as it might. I can get that a little bit, just as I can get it when when the Serbs and the Croats boo each other's anthems because it's a, you know, it's still a, a very raw wound. I think with England, the thing that struck me with England more than anything, and I think I also said that I couldn't understand why the English booed Flower of Scotland and why, and why they booed the German anthem. What I didn't get was why the English booed the Croatian anthem and why they kind of instinctively, although not that, not many of them, booed the Danish anthem. It's just a bit, it just, that in itself feels a bit kind of excessive to me that you're, you're booing the kind of the existence of other countries. It just seems really strange. Um, in terms of 10 German bombers, I agree it's not in itself offensive. I think the problem with that is that it is being sung at people mm-hmm. and it is a reminder of English exceptionalism and a um, kind of an expression of it's 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 not well for a start it's not comparable to Flower of Scotland because the, the the military victories that that's talking about were like 700 years ago I don't I think if you're still smarting over a military defeat 700 years ago you maybe have your priorities wrong the war the second world war is within living memory for some people and it, its consequences and its after effects are in are continue to affect the world today. Singing it seems a slightly unnecessary, a slightly unnecessary provocation. I think it's not the problem that I have with ten German, bomb, ten German bombers is not that it, it is offensive per se. It's that it's it's what singing it says about the the people doing the singing. It's it's often delivered in an antagonistic rather yeah, than yeah, 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 yeah. fan celebratory way. So yeah, it's 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 the it's the way it's delivered rather than what is the the, the Battle of Britain was a defensive move. You get the impression that the ten German bombers is often 
often sung in a, an attack mode rather than yeah, a yeah, celebration exactly, of the defence yeah. that it was. Also, I'll, I'll probably talk about this at far too great a length throughout this podcast, but the, the one thing, having spent a lot of time around England, a lot of England fans, and there's a quarter of a million there in the, in the environs of Wembley yesterday, is it's amazing how aggressive everything is. Um, and I think that's because one of the one of the things that's missed a little bit in terms of the coverage of England fans is that beer is not the only thing that they are consuming whilst they are on their England away days, and that ha- that changes the mood considerably. Um, Somebody sent us a message on Twitter uh, in, within the last few hours, Rory, prior to recording that what you specifically talked about last week in terms of England fandom being sort of part stag do part cosplay proved to be pretty prescient in terms of what we saw ahead of the final it's always nice to have my genius appreciated but the did, did i say the thing about i wasn't sorry i was just <laughs> drawing the drawing the strands of back-to-back podcasts together not <laughs> steve, steve looks slightly awkward so i'll just make it clear that i realize that steve isn't appreciating my genius the i wouldn't want to put him in that position did, did i say the thing last week about the national anthem whether you sing it at people, you, you, yeah. it's, extended it, arms, it, yeah. It kind of it's relevant again. It's it's England fans sing their songs at people. There is a noticeable like lack when the, when the Argentinians sing. We were saying this last night that the Argentine Argentinian fans who are by no means saints like you get there's huge problems with with hooliganism. There's huge problems with with ultras that have effectively become criminal criminal organisations. There's not Argentinian fan culture is not to be kind of universally admired and praised. But the one thing they do really well is songs. They have songs that have complex lyrics, different melodies that are that are kind of original and witty and and beautiful, to be honest. If you listen to the um the various versions that they sing of, of Fito Paez's uh, Dali Alegria Mi Corazon. It's a, they are beautiful songs that have been put together really well. It's not just, oh, I'm England till I die. You know, that's, that's kind of as original as it gets. It's why actually the, um, I quite like the Harry Maguire songs, at least that's a bit different. Uh, and even like Sweet Caroline being added to the, to the playlist is, is quite good. It's a bit different. The, and also I suspect that what I'm about to say is related to the, the, the tyranny of the England band. But England's songs don't celebrate stuff that that they're almost acts of aggression and they are kind of yeah they're, they're not sung with pride they're sung with hostility and defiance and a bit of rage and it's this is not something that i think just applies to football i think you what the mood the, what the mood was like on, at wembley yesterday was like a stag do on the turn and it's exactly like any town centre at kicking out time on a saturday night or the you know the high street in zanti in the summer it's just something that goes in the psyche of English, young English men, mainly. Not not exclusively men, but mainly men. Um, and not exclusively young, to be perfectly honest. Plenty of middle-aged men there. Um, and I don't, I don't quite get it. I don't quite get where it comes from. But that's the problem with everything that, with all the stuff that we talk about with England fans, is that none of it is celebratory and sort of jubilant and exultant. It's all kind of... There's, there's a sneer to a lot of it at everybody else. And that, that, that goes for the boon of the anthems. It goes for the way they sing their own national anthem. It's the way that, the way that they, they chant their songs is not to celebrate who they are. It's to celebrate what they're not. Uh, now, one thing that you could say about our listeners is that they are very format literate. Uh, not that they know how to indent a paragraph. But when, for example, one of us suggests a way of updating the European Championship, there'll be a number of you armed and ready with a response. Uh, Given how long it took us to talk about Rory's 32-team competition last week, I've had to greatly edit the following submissions, partly because they are built on similar foundations, which is nice. 
that there is a through line through our listenership. First from Craig O'Callaghan. Betty, Norrie, Rowley and Tag. Yes. There's a lot to like about Maury's 32-team Euro concept, although not according to Twitter, it would seem. And this week's in-pod workshopping only made me like the idea more. However, I think it perhaps doesn't go far enough. My pitch abolish qualifying. After all, nobody likes qualifying. Turn international football into a permanent Nations League that runs between one tournament and another. Qualification for the Euro and World Cup would be determined by league performance in the international season directly before. Teams in the top leagues would qualify automatically with some playoff spots for lower leagues. I had too much time on my hands during ITV ad breaks during the semi-final the other night, so I've shown my working at the bottom of the email to see if the idea actually works. Here's where the editing comes in, and I hope I represented accurately by butchering it completely. The new Nations Nations League has League A, two groups of eight, play home and away. The top two enter the semi-finals to decide a winner, bottom two relegated. League B, four groups of six, play home and away, top side promoted, bottom side relegated. League C, three groups of five, play home and away, top side promoted, plus best second place side. Matches run between tournaments, playoffs in the spring before a tournament. For the Euros, all sides in League A qualify automatically, that's 16 teams, plus the top three sides in League B, that's 12 teams. The four fourth-place sides in League B take part in playoffs, with the four promoted sides from League C to fill the final four places. Craig then continues, I would also like to rebut Steve's ruthless idea to kick teams out of the tournament with a pre-qualifying round at the finals. The joy of tournament football is completely lost if each team doesn't have a decent guaranteed minimum of games. Even with a 32-team tournament, I don't think you can justify sending a whole nation of fans home after just 90 minutes. Three matches to fine form, show your worth, and enjoy the occasion should be the bare minimum. If that doesn't move you, consider the poor Scotland fans who have had to shell out for tickets for group stage matches in the hope their side would feature, only to lose to Israel on penalties and fall at the first hurdle. That's from Craig. And Russell Parker has what he describes as a 32-team Euro, and then he always has an S in brackets, just to cater for all those who have differing views on the pluralisation of a single Euros. 32-team Euros counter-proposal. Dear set-piece menu boys, I've been listening to your podcast some while now, but I've been drawn to email by the proposal of a 32-team Euros as this is a concept I've been dwelling on myself since I bought a wall chart for Euro 2016 and it didn't really work properly. Jonathan Wilson might describe it as the groups not being discreet. I've been describing it as non-wall chartable. The expansion to 32 teams to me seems a pretty obviously good idea. It wouldn't actually take more time out of the calendar, yet another eight teams could be pleased. There are 12 more games to the broadcasters and the wall chart will be saved. Rory was right that uh, for this to be feasible, you probably want to ditch qualifying groups involving all of the teams. Otherwise, you end up playing all the way through a qualification tournament only to give the majority of teams a place anyway. And we're not conmebol. However, my counter-proposal would involve scrapping qualification groups for the Euros altogether. It would also involve the Nations League alternating formats depending on whether it was following a World Cup or Euros in the two-year window following a World Cup. Instead of a Nations League where leagues A, B and C have four groups of four and League D has a group of four and a group of three, leagues A, B and C would have two groups of eight with League D being a single group of seven. To use it, this in place of qualifying, my proposal involves nine teams confirming their place at the Euros by the end of the year prior to the tournament, leaving 46 teams competing for 23 places. Suddenly Stephen is interested about halving teams. They would be then split into 23 seeded and 23 unseeded teams using the overall Nations League rankings. They would be drawn against each other for playoffs that would take, prior to, take place prior to the tournament. I'm quite jealous of the fact that Rory at least has the excuse of a weekly column for the fact that he spends time musing on competition formats. I have no excuse beyond being a nerd. That regards from Russell. So isn't it interesting that two people completely separately came up with a very, very similar idea? And if you were able to follow that format with me editing it, well done, because I didn't when I was reading it.
felt like you should have had a PowerPoint presentation in the background. You should have been sharing your screen, Hugh. Um, just to go to Craig's point about my ruthlessness of pre-qualifying at, at a Euro, you could still guarantee nations at least two games if you had two-legged playoffs <laughs> minimum to reach the group stage. And in terms of tickets, what well, you could buy tickets in advance of your team progressing, but have the option to to sell them back to UEFA if they didn't make it. They do that sort of thing all the time already. So there would be no difficulty for Scotland fans to take a punt on their team reaching the, the group stage. And then when they didn't pass the tickets on to groups of supporters who would, would want them instead. Um, I should say that there was pretty much a PowerPoint presentation that was given to me um, by both Russell and Craig. So thank you. No way of being able to uh, broadcast that. But thank you anyway. And finally, an email from Laura Berman in Brooklyn, which will provide a beautiful segue to our topic today. It's called Obligatory American Opinion, and it follows SBM 237 about the value of this euro and our nostalgicizing, still not a word, about the past. Dear Julian, Graham, Maurizio and Nuno. My first tournament was the 2002 World Cup. My father's Brazilian friend sent my siblings and me shirts and taught us that the three best players were Ronaldo, Rivaldo and Ronaldinho. Fast forward to Euro 2020 and my father watching the Portugal against Belgium game texted me, why does Ronaldo play for Portugal now? My father's ignorance, while amusing, is also relevant to your discussion. Plenty of my friends and colleagues here in New York have watched Euro 2020 and 2021 and enjoyed it without being fully clear on what it is. Is this like the World Cup, they ask? Anecdotally, Americans are much more likely to experience international tournaments as gateway drug to club football, although the retention rate is rather small. You may recall that Eric Dyer in Russia was what finally got me hooked, so to speak, on the club game. I think part of the reason for this is that the summer sports calendar is thinner and the tournament operates in a narrow time window, so it's easy to get briefly emotionally invested and then lose interest by the time the leagues resume domestically. The necessary baseline knowledge of the club game seems like an insurmountable hurdle at first. By contrast, country rivalries are easier for casual viewers to understand than, say, the bitter acrimony between Crystal Palace and Brighton based on a stretch of motorway in the southeast of England. I'm Rick Laporte's notwithstanding, nationality is generally non-fungible. Some of the names on the team sheet will stay the same year after year. You can fondly experience Harry Maguire banging goals in with his massive head in major tournaments without knowing or caring if he was drawing a salary from Leicester or Manchester United at the time. I've delighted several Americans by telling them that Giorgio Chiellini is the guy who got bitten in 2014 because they remember that even if they've never heard of Juventus. Finally, Americans absolutely love penalty shootouts. At least in this respect, Andrea Agnelli is a genius. Americans will watch the last two minutes of any sporting contest. Mazel tov to Hugh and Gemma. Very kind. Thank you, Laura. Best regards. That is Laura. Correspondence of any kind to setpiecemenu.gmail.com. And Laura's email gets us started on a hot takes and takeaways Euro edition spectacular. After a period of growing cynicism displayed in part on this podcast, no doubt, I think uh, I will start things by saying that my appreciation for international football has had something of a reawakening. Nothing to do with England, of course, reaching the final. In fact, my cynicism for that remains strong, as we have already alluded to. And I think I've always loved the spectacle of a major tournament, but Euro 2020 has helped me rebuild a little respect of the actual football too. Has anybody else had some sort of reawakening for international football? Or are they still massively cynical? No, but the thing is that this is what happens every time, isn't it? That the tournaments are great and that's fine. That's what tournaments are for. But to get to tournaments, you need to trudge through the endless wilderness of international tournament qualifying. And that's, that's what people don't dislike. International tournaments can, can do things and make us feel things um, that that club football can only do very rarely. 
Uh, and they, as we've seen, they bring countries together in a way that doesn't really happen about anything other than football tournaments and maybe kind of the Olympics. Uh, so even, and even then, to be honest, I'd say that the tournament, the football tournaments are bigger in terms of national unity. But that none of that means that qualifying isn't dreadful. Just qualifying is dreadful. This so you're saying a... that I've been, I, I have been fooled. You've not been fooled. <laughs> you've, just, you've just been very naive. <laughs> but I think my point was not about the spectacle. My point was genuinely about the football. Oh, the we quality had a of the football. Yeah, we had a conversation a few weeks ago, didn't we, about what is international level? And I think that one of the reasons why I wanted to pose that question is because international level is dressed up as being the pinnacle. But I think during our conversation, we mm. made it clear that that's not actually the case. And therefore, by association, we were putting international football down somewhat. So having had those expectations lowered over the course of the last four and a bit weeks, I wonder if my expectations have been risen a little bit to be no doubt dashed in the heat of Qatar in 2022. Well, I think that's been one of the things that's been good about this tournament is that it's been a better than average tournament. It's perhaps not been as brilliant as some people were getting carried away with at times. But I think whilst our expectations as a nation were relatively high for England to do well, there was a general acceptance that perhaps the tournament coming at the end of such an attritional season and under the circumstances it was being played might not overall reach the heights we'd hoped. So the fact that the the number of high-quality games has drowned out those of a poorer level means that overall our, our sensation for the tournament has been one that has encouraged us. And, and that's been fantastic. And particularly after a, compact, a compacted season where we basically gorged on 10 months worth of club football in the space of nine months and could be forgiven for being a little bit fatigued by football going into Euro 2020. It's turned out that actually it's energised us and, and has been a, a great watch, a great spectacle. And, and there's been some outstanding highlights. If, if we're looking at this tournament being, are we saying above average in terms of quality? Not completely. I know we, we've talked about if you're watching this game as a 10-year-old or a 50-year-old, you, you know, the tournament at, at different ages, it's going to feel different to you. But the refereeing in this tournament, do you feel that has helped the games, the flow of the games, the spectacle of the game? The refereeing to me, I, I feel was outstanding in this tournament in terms of letting Kind of normally when players go to ground, it's free kick, free kick, free kick, and the game gets completely disjointed. To me, there seems to be more of a a flow to games, and it seems to be consciously that the, whether the referees who they picked to referee the games or what they told the referees who who officiated that there seemed to be a flow to this international football that I've not seen for quite a while. Is that is am I am I wrong in that? Am I as Would, foolish as Hugh in that? And yes, I thought VAR VAR apart from the I think the Raheem Sterling penalty against Denmark, which I thought was just, I didn't, I didn't see how on earth that that could be verified and given. VAR had a cracking tournament as well. So are we looking at maybe the officials in VAR, kind of not being the stars of the show, but certainly helping the tournament along? And what I'm interested about as a follow up to that, Chinch, is was it was it because of a of a diktat? Do you think from from UEFA Towers that that happened or genuinely do you think refereeing is improving because that one of the reasons why we've complained about VAR in the past is that the, the Premier League's decision on how it wants to implement it is different mm -hmm. because they wanted to do it differently because they either ignored or saw the previous leagues doing it and wanted to change it why they will have to answer that question but or is it a, have they been 
to the extent allowing the flow of the game to the detriment of the fouls not being given that should have been given. So do you see what I mean? Have they, have they been told, let it flow regardless and let a few fouls that should be fouls go because they wanted to let it flow? Or genuinely, are they just making the right decisions because well, a referee, they have learned yeah. how to referee better? A referee can't say, well, that's a foul, but I'm not going to blow my whistle. But I think what was noticeable is that when players were kind of play acting, that it was pretty obvious to cross the board. It wasn't a particular referee or two referees. It seemed to be across the board. There was this kind of understanding that players were laying it on a bit thick and, you know, just get up and get on with it. But at the right times, when there were bad challenges, that they were making absolutely the right decisions. So I thought they got the balance right. It was absolutely perfect. So again, whether it's the officials, and of course you presume they get the very best officials to cover this tournament, which presumably they did, but then how they conduct themselves, there seemed to be... Rather than just say a player goes to ground, it tended to be the whistle goes, it's a free kick and everyone just accepts that whether it is or it's not. Here there seems to be a bit more of a kind of not wanting to, to let it flow and, and actively doing that is, is that it, they, they seem to, to realise that every coming together in an international football match doesn't have to be a foul one way or the other. I think it seemed like they, were refereeing, like they were refereeing a domestic game on the international stage. I think what, what struck me was that they, that they almost seemed to take a second before they they blew the whistle. Yeah. It was interesting with um, with Donny Makaleli, or whatever his, na- his name is, the Dutch referee who did the final. Danny. No, Bjorn Danny Kuypers. Was it oh, Bjorn, 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 Bjorn Kuypers? Yeah, the, the other Dutch guy that you're thinking oh, about. Okay. Uh, uh, Danny, Danny McKayley. Danny, Danny McKayley refereed yeah. England semi-final. Though. Right, so Bjorn Kuypers um, doing the final, who had this brilliant kind of method of like he'd, He'd sort of, as he was running, he and there was a coming together. Then he'd kind of crouch down a bit and just stare at the patch of grass, as if to, as if he was like envisioning what had just happened, interrogating the grass. What stories can you tell me? What did you see? What, what happened? <laughs> and he'd do that in like a second. He'd, he'd telepathically kind of talk to the grass, and the grass would say, "Oh no, there was there was no touch. There was no touch. He went down too easily." And and then Bjorn Kuipers would kind of lift up in this sort of this 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 sort of halo of of justice and knowledge <laughs> and just sort of say no 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 play on but, but he, he when, got, he gave, he, when he gave when he gave a, a foul he would interrogate the grass and then when he decided that he wanted to give the foul he pointed at the blade of grass that he had just interrogated as if they say, were the so, ones that had committed the foul no no, no, no. It, it was as if to say look this guy says that, that you just fouled above him and he's not happy so i want you to apologize to this guy here gary the grass and tell him no he he to be honest, I thought there were a couple that he let go that looked pretty obviously like fouls to me. And I think what, what I don't know if there's been a diktat. I think it's interesting that some of the games have been refereed by South Americans because of the swap, mm-hmm. which should really, as anyone who's ever watched any South American football will tell you, should really lead to sort of one foul being given every 10 or 15 seconds, regardless of what happens. Um, but I wonder if they've been told, just wait to see what happens because if there's an advantage, we really want you to play it. One of the big things that, that referee, referees can be too, too like whistle happy, too trigger happy on the whistle. And they blow when, when there's maybe not even a major advantage, just a small, you know, the ball might just run to, to, to a teammate of the, of the foul player. I think they did that more and more. And what we maybe noticed was that if you do that a lot, then you do cut down the number of fouls because the pointless ones aren't being given. The ones that are sort of marginal, they're 70-30, they're probably fouls, but they're in the middle of the pitch. Nothing's, they're not really important. They're just 
chances to break the play. Um, and actually, look, the, the ball has ended up at the feet of a teammate anyway. anyway so They are stoppages, you know, the literally. Yeah, just they're just stoppages. stoppages. And I think they've cut them out to an extent. And that, that did help the games flow a bit more. Well, remember when VAR was introduced to the Premier League, the, the buzz phrase was maximum impact, minimum interference. I think we've actually seen that implemented by the, the officiating at this Euro. Perhaps sometimes to the detriment because there were one or two. You think of the Harry Wilson red card at the end of the Wales-Denmark round of 16, which was a complete nonsense and should have been overturned by VAR, but wasn't because they probably thought, oh, well, look, it's, it, they're 4-0 down. This is not a decision that's impacting the game, so we'll let it slide. I, mean, I think most people feel as though Jorginho was incredibly lucky to get away with a yellow rather than a red. Do you not agree? No, he's a yellow. He's a yellow. I don't think... The last time you were able to go over the ball and leave stubs on an opponent was in the previous. He, d- he didn't go over the ball. He did. He didn't. He didn't go over the ball. He, he went, played. He played the he, ball, Rory. But that's not a defence. The, the the challenge was completely reckless. Do you think completely it was that reckless. bad? Yes. He knew exactly, in, and he says by playing the ball, that's my defence. By right. that's you don't need the studs were up. He knew exactly what he was doing. It was a terrible Peter, challenge. Peter Walton on ITV and BT Sport will tell you that the, the, the word reckless is yellow, out of yeah. control and endangering an opponent. Yes, is red. Is red. So oh, no, was, do you still think red, Chinch? If I've just given I do. you that, absolutely that yes, yes. It's that, well, right. reckless, dangerous. I, I think if you're if you're making a reckless challenge. There is a, a very good chance it will end up being a, a dangerous one. Just one thing tends to... It'll be a news of a reckless challenge. It, it invariably will lead to that. And I just think he saw... It's dinner and drinks, isn't it, ground. <laughs> it Dinner is, will lead to drinks. Absolutely. Reckless will, will lead to It will. It'll lead to going to a show and, and having a great time in a hotel room. But it's... Um, and I'm not speaking from personal experience. But again, I, I do feel that Georgina weighed that up and thought by playing the ball the way that he did. But it's, it's the manner of the challenge. that the stu- there's a, You don't have to do that. He decided to do that. And I did feel... And he was presumably saying... And the fact that he stayed down yeah i think he realized oh, yeah, I, yeah. I do think Looked, yeah. but again it was down. reckless but it, to me it was it, it was dang, very very dangerous as well Steven, and that doesn't were, mean to say were. that a player has to be injured to prove the point it, it doesn't have to be that Grealish goes down or breaks his leg or, or gets his leg cut open do, that's not the point it's at the manner in which you make that challenge and i do you agree steve do you think that was i, 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 I felt it was yeah i think as a general rule that would be given as a red yeah in the first instance and if it wasn't in most of the leagues and competitions where I've seen VAR implemented, it would be overturned to red, mm-hmm. either directly by the VAR official or after the referee went to the monitor. Mm-hmm. However, I, I bring it up as as the maybe the point that is the exception to, to what we've seen in general is that I was perfectly happy that that didn't happen under those circumstances in the same way that I was satisfied it didn't happen with the Harry Wilson one in terms of that was clearly, look, we we do not want interference if we can possibly Mm. avoid it. So therefore, it has to be catastrophically wrong on the field for us for us to get involved. And the other thing just to quickly say about VAR, I'm sure lots of people know this, is not only did they have specialist teams running the VAR operation throughout the competition. They weren't swapping between on-field refereeing and, and VAR officiating, but they also had additional VAR officials involved in each game who were just there to deal with offsides. So part of the reason, perhaps, A, it interfered less often, and B, there was a sense that 
considerably more was got right than we are used to seeing was basically because they threw the kitchen sink at it and you won't see that replicated in domestic competition it, uh, the one the one thing that i did think with the with the var the role that VAR, var played was that they did seem to have a much higher bar for what we think we need to get involved with and i think that made a huge difference because the, i think the ones that that really kind of get fans goats are the, are the ones that feel slightly unnecessary that you think well look do we need to be wasting this time mm. fretting over whether this is a a yellow or a you know or even a yellow or a red at times like if the, if the referee thinks it's a yellow but it could be a red if you play it in slow motion do we need to bother with that and I, var did seem to have a kind of yeah or handball is the other example that they there were a couple of of handballs that in in England, certainly, we would have wasted three minutes looking at that. Clearly, somebody in the in the booth just said, "No, if that's what you think, crack on." And that's how it should be used. That's how it should be used for the as a almost as a weapon of last resort for the referee. Because uh, some we we mentioned the delict one from the the Netherlands Czech Republic round of sixteen, which is where VAR did get involved. We mentioned that last week, and I think they did because that happened at a point in the game in which the decision had to be right because it was going to be decisive on the outcome. Whereas, arguably, in the case of the Harry Wilson one and even the Jorginho one, because it came so late in extra time, mm. that, that, that there was probably a bit more of a of a shrug of the shoulders well actually the game is what it is right now so we can we can go with the with the on field it doesn't it, this is not something that needs correcting and and he his penalty was saved so that that also helps them although that, that yeah, wouldn't absolutely. have been a yeah, determination that, at the time well, that would have been the if, if that had been the if that had been the winning moment then that's something that, I, that a lot of people would have jumped upon I'm sure uh, any other hot takes and takeaways uh, i think england might not host the 2030 world cup <laughs> from, from recent experience in the last 24 hours as we uh, record this podcast that may well be something that is used as evidence against that particular bit it was it was a real sh- i think the, the one thing that's really lifted you, you're right it's been an above uh, and above average euros all told um it wasn't quite euro. The, was it a euro or... sorry a euro no it's a yeah no well yeah it's been a, an above average tournament all oh. told <laughs> Cop out. No, um, it wasn't an above average tournaments. It wasn't an above <laughs> these <laughs> nice one, Steve. These tournaments have having had been above average. But the <laughs> including I think one of the genuinely great days of tournament football, which was the day of Spain, Croatia and France, Switzerland, that was as good a day. If I, I did this uh, for the newsletter and I have had some suggestions of rival days, uh, including the day of France West Germany in nineteen eighty two. Uh, Holland Brazil plus Spain Italy in USA '94 um, was a good day. You had uh, some real niche ones as well, didn't you? Yeah, like there, there were a few from like the 1950s, but I think I think you probably have to discount those on the grounds that all the games kicked off at the same time and nobody owned televisions, so doesn't really matter whether they're a great day because no one saw them. Uh, but th- I think that Monday the 28th of June would be, which I think is what the date was, would be competitive because they were two genuinely staggering football matches. But the one thing that I think has really lifted the tournament and the format across Europe has not worked. Seferin said that UEFA won't do it again. They would be right not to do it again. It's a bad idea. It was a bad idea before the pandemic. It was a particularly bad idea during the pandemic. But the And they the- should have pulled the plug on it. I mean, I know that's not yeah. necessarily a hot take, but it, 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 it was foreseeable 
that it would be a problem. It was foreseeable that some nations would be greatly advantaged. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do you others. think it affected the tournament, yeah. Steve? Do you think in yes. terms of who Without actually won the tournament? Those that reach the final travel the least. Yeah. The England-Denmark semi-final is the, the perfect example of that. It's just, it's not, it's not a balanced competition if one team who has played all but one of their games at home other than a short hop to Rome is playing a semi-final at the end of an incredibly attritional football campaign calendar and they've had to travel back from, from Baku, which is just simply should shouldn't they shouldn't be hosting games under any circumstances least of all the circumstances that we found ourselves in at the end of well, the season. interestingly for for world cup qualifying did you know that uefa has a long distance travel thing they do so they're not i didn't know this so if you're kazakhstan yeah. you can't be drawn in a group with loads of different teams because it's too far for them to travel if you're iceland you can't be drawn in a group with various other teams because it's too... I think Iceland and the Faroes aren't allowed to be in the same group because it wouldn't be fair to make other teams travel to those locations, to both of those locations. You'd only have one of Iceland and the Faroes in the same group. And and by extension, say if you're Wales, you can't be in a group with both Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan. You can't be expected to make that trip more than once during a qualifying campaign. Which does raise the question, why on earth did they hold tournament finals in Baku? That which, is, which isn't a qualifying campaign over the course of a year. It's it's over the it's, course of a number of days. Yeah, that that doesn't seem entirely fair. Um, so, and Basically, the, what you're saying is Denmark wouldn't be expected during the course of qualifying exactly. to have played games under those circumstances. No. They were expected to do it in a, in a final. Yeah, that's that, that. There's no question that the that the nature of it affected who who made the. Who made the semi-finals? Whether it affected who won the tournament, I don't know, but it definitely affected the nature of who made the semi-finals um, because they all they all played three all three of their group games at home. That was a massive advantage. I also think that something's lost if so. Italy before the final obviously had the semi in London, but they flew back to Florence and then flew from Florence to London before the final, which strikes me as being very strange. They decided to do it. Obviously, didn't hurt them because they won the tournament, but I, I do feel as though travel is something that affects outcomes much more than than we generally give it credit for and i think this whole experience should probably have taught you for you can't do this tournament across the continent regardless of how many pandemics there are um but the one thing that i think has really lifted it beyond anything else with with the slight exception of, of the way it ended on sunday is the fact that in wembley from the the germany game onwards and particularly in denmark in copenhagen the crowds yeah, the crowds have have been such a. I don't know. They've just made it all feel so much so much better. Like yeah, I I do wonder even even that day, of of Spain, Croatia, and France, Switzerland. I do wonder if there be if there've been empty stadiums as, as we've had in the Copa America. Would would any of that has have felt as epic? Mm-hmm. I don't know if it would. It's a, it's a combination of colour and sound, um, but it is also the, the, a, a reference point in our minds about what it has come from. So, for example, if it was full stadium down to half. Mm. We would not be having the same experience as whether it's yeah. from from zero to half, and it is the it is the huge stride in not only the uh, the numbers, but in terms of adding that growth into the significance of the games as well. So the gra- there, there hasn't been a gradual increase just in numbers. You've added the gradual increase in numbers, but then at the end you've you've supplanted onto it just this massive, great, big significance to all those people watching, uh, to the extent that sixty thousand plus. 
at least 100 um, on Sunday at Wembley were, were there creating an atmosphere which is to mark an event of great stature. And that's it the is, difference. It is, it, it is very important that, again, if the games are tremendous, that you do have a fat middle-aged man with his shirt off and children in tears. They are vital elements of a, a day and football matches to remember. Chinch, can I ask you a question about a, a hot take that I have? Oh, no. Is it a really hard question? No, it's not. It's not. It's oh, OK. You know, you know when we talk about long balls and you say, I never played a long ball, I played a long pass, and there's yes, a difference yes, between yes. the two. Yeah. I have noticed, and it may well be that uh, my experience is not full, but I have at least noticed that the given that, that, that football at the moment is all about short passes, generally yeah. speaking, you know, by volume, the great majority of passes are tending to be at the moment short passes. Yes. I've just noticed the amount of long passes in the games that we have been watching. That might be partly due to tiredness and to try and prevent running. But also, you know, given given that Pep Guardiola's Manchester City have, and, and others besides, but I'm just thinking about Edison, have played long passes to such great effect in this yes. last season. Yeah. Uh, I just wonder if that's, that's trickled down a little bit. Yeah, I also think cross-field long passes yes. have been a major feature as well because of different formations playing with wing-backs, stretching games, uh, trying to pull back fours apart. Absolutely, yeah. And it's again, it's getting that... Short passing tends to bring control because obviously the chance of you giving the ball away. I thought Italy in that second half against England, if you're with Verratti and, and Jorginho in particular, their short passing game basically just stifled England completely and they got control. They didn't play a lot of long forward balls, if you'd noticed, because the way England played and how they sat. But a lot of teams, yeah, use that as a... A weapon, and why wouldn't Spain, you? Spain, Spain does, as well. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, but and why wouldn't you? If you have the ability to pass a ball over that distance, but what it can do, it can bypass presses, it can switch play, it can, again, pull defences apart. That's the whole reason behind it. That's why teams use these long passes, because it can turn teams around or it can move them from side to side across the pit. So again, it's another tactic, and people might think, oh, it's just a last resort, really. You're playing a long ball over the top or, or switching play. Absolutely not. I think Guardiola uses the switch of play from, from centre-halves. Enormously, Laporte is a big exponent of that kind of from, from centre-half out to the right wing. to Again, to, to bypass presses, to take players out of the game and to, to, to move an opposition defence around. So, yeah, amazingly, you are absolutely right, Hugh. Well spotted. Uh, well, it's just it's just that it's stigmatised, isn't it? Long, long, long balls are stigmatised, particularly in this, in this time of progressive football. But... It always makes me there's think There's no such thing. It isn't a long ball for professional players. Exactly. It Everything makes... tactically. It's never just, oh, I punted it up. Apart from, I think, maybe there was one in the England-Italy final where England were under pressure in the first half. It broke to Declan Rice, who basically just <laughs> hoofed it over the halfway line. Yeah. That was the, that's just a long hoof ball over the over the top. That's not with any intent at all. There, there were a couple from Maguire as well. Maguire yeah. hits yes. a couple of just proper it's, it's one. One in the second half, we just smashes yeah. it out of play, and it, again, it's just <laughs> we're under pressure. Just anywhere will do. But that that's very rare. You, you you probably only see English players doing that. Do you really? A lot of the other sides don't, don't really. Because I think somebody said, in, I think it was Guy Mowbray in commentary said, "Oh, Raheem Sterling gave Declan Rice a bit of a glare there, saying, why 'Why don't you just play that ball along the floor to me?'" Really? I bet <laughs> Sterling was thinking. I'd say, well, that, that was pretty... I think he meant to pass it to me and only missed me by 60 yards. But anyway, no, it is. It's, uh, that, the cross-field play, I think that was one thing I noticed, the way teams did switch play and the accuracy as well as some of the passing was brilliant. Is that the fact that we, we all noticed that and it stuck out so glaringly, <laughs> I guess it's commendable to, to what we saw. Do you think Jorginho and Verratti were like, 
what game are you playing? You play? <laughs> just, just take a touch and pass it to one of your teammates. Hoof! And it's like, Bonucci's like, oh my God, and Chiellini, oh my God, he's kicked it over the top of us. Like, there's like about 38 minutes gone in the game. <laughs> Do you know what? There was, they were watching oh, Euro 2016. The, um, someone texted me last night to say that the, the moment you knew that the momentum in the, in the final was shifting was when Bonucci decided that the correct response to every single long ball forward was a completely nonchalant backwards header. Yes, yes, yes. Like, the, are you really going to make me do this again? I'll just flick it back to we're Gianluigi. Playing, we're playing against an international pub team. We've just re- <laughs> Sorry, Giorgio, I've just realised. They're rubbish. We can beat this lot. Well, I'd like you to go on holiday with Giorgio. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the last thing I need is a headache. <laughs> but we're on the beach. We are going to play the kind of relaxed head tennis that I am currently playing with England's back four. Um, mm. Which, funnily enough, brings me to another quick takeaway, which is that whenever England score early in a in a major tournament significant game in knockout stages, they get beaten. So all the euphoria and, you know, dream starts and everything, that should be discouraged. Because if you think about back to the Germany game, when the game was terrible for the first hour or so, England kept it nil-nil, didn't score early, didn't make the mistake of taking the lead until the 75th minute, and they go on and win the game. So I think mm. England should have that takeaway at the very least. It wasn't even that. It was the fact that for the first 10 minutes, England suckered Germany in by allowing Leon Goretzka to wander through completely unchallenged twice. <laughs> go on, Leon. This will be easy, won't it? This will be really easy. Just like, not even a problem. Just walked through. I thought, um, away from England, I thought to just sort of rattle through some opinions. Here are some hot takes coming at you fast. Uh, Belgium, golden generation's finished. Sorry about that. Uh, France, Didier Deschamps isn't a very good manager. Imagine how, how good they'd be if they had, for example, Roberto Mancini in charge. Uh, Spain, I think, are building something quite special. I think Pedri, this would be the, mm, this is the tournament that will, have, playing, yeah. that will have alerted people to just how good he is. Oh. Um, the fact in the semi, in the first semi-final against Italy, he didn't misplace a pass until the 119th minute. That's, I mean, that in itself is extraordinary. That's Smith-esque, and that, isn't it? That, that's the kind of control you would have. I would not misplace a pass because I would not attempt any. I would be trying to do Rabonas. <laughs> you did Declan Rice, you know, that ball over the top to really turn, you know, Italy around because that clearly was the plan. I, 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 <laughs> they did, they did the turn most... around. They turned uh, around at Declan Rice and went, but what? It's a, that's the most generous piece of analysis of the tournament. Um, I can play that 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 long ball, that long pass. Yes. Um, and the other thing I think that's interesting is if you look at the way teams play, you can see quite a lot of the the kind of best practice, dominant cultural kind of ideas that come from Guardiola and and to an extent from the Bundesliga, starting to take to take hold ev- literally everywhere. So so Denmark played quite a lot of of that, those kind of patterns, even though, you know, the Danes are not traditionally associated with that type of football. Kasper Kuhlmann is a, is a big Guardiola kind of advocate. Um, you can see that the shape of European football changing. Um, and the other thing is that I think is really interesting is to so the two breakthrough stars that we've not really heard of, is probably Damsgaard. Mm-hmm. And to a slightly lesser extent, as he's more famous, Patrick Schick, who were the two kind of, who were both very like tournament players. Like Damsgaard was has been at Sampdoria for a year, I think, came from Nordjylland. Um He was kind of the the absolute breakout star. I don't think anyone was expecting Mikkel, Mikkel Damsgaard to be, you know, on everybody's lips at the end of the tournament. Schick, thinking, is, there's an element of hindsight here, but Schick is literally the perfect player to have a good tournament. They were, they were, you, you could have foreseen Patrick Schick, who scores goals in bunches, who is a, a top-class footballer, but he's a little bit kind of hit and miss, a little bit 
erratic. You could see him if he if he caught fire early, having a really good tournament. I think it'll be really interesting interesting to see what happens to both of them this summer, mm. because ten years ago, two English clubs would have paid huge amounts of money for both of them, because they would have been the big, sexy kind of. Are they going to have a Paborski? Is that what we're saying? Here? Yes, exactly. Well, this is the exact conversation I was having with Stephen the other day about that. These are the kind of players that m- might be. Not not so much anymore when yeah. scouting's a little yeah. bit more uh, well better. But they're, <laughs> when they when they actually a, watch the players for a exactly. bit exactly <laughs> well, well a bit more than just the highlights on ITV during Euro '96 when they saw Paborski score a chip. But they but they they are more aware of that and they're less likely to do it. But exactly. then also yeah. Stephen said made a really interesting point about Patrick Schick is that he is at his level domestically, which funnily enough, given our conversation about international level mid to upper tier Bundesliga seems to be about the level of international football because you prosper in one, you prosper in the other. Well, I think it sort of goes against something that we previously talked about, that the proliferation of of European football in particular across our TV channels, the fact that we've got FIFA Football Manager, we felt that maybe there wouldn't be anybody surprising who jumped out during the tournament and that that proved to be incorrect because there were, were one or two. But that also, using the example of Schick, that it's possible for one of those who maybe people weren't terribly familiar with to have an outstanding tournament, but you think, yeah, but that was just an outstanding tournament. I don't necessarily see that leading to anything because you can plot through his course of, of having played at Roma, Leipzig, Bayer Leverkusen, that maybe he has that level. But then there is the contrast that, that other players like Damsgaard, as, as Rory has mentioned, um, to throw another Myla into the mix and even spin at Sola that there are by contrast to, to Schick players who can come out of the pack at the tournament be phenomenal that you do think ah hang on a second is this their breakout moment is this when somebody does decide that they're worth a punt even if they weren't unfamiliar to them going into the competition three, three good left backs by the way yeah. Luke, Luke Shaw um, Myla and spin at Zola Right-footed left-backs, though. Yeah, two two, of, two them. of them are, yeah. Mm. I think, I mean, and the other the other player who, to be fair, counts as, I mean, he plays for Juventus, so he's not exactly an unknown. And he may, he, you know, he's already one of the biggest clubs in the world. But Federico Chiesa, I think this is the tournament that people will really have started to take notice of of just how good he is. It's interesting that now playing for one of the biggest clubs in Italy, you can be slightly overlooked by European football. That's slightly odd. Damsgaard's the real surprise. And that there's an interesting dynamic there of Samp in particular, but... But Italy in general looking a little, a little bit more at Scandinavia than maybe they're used to. There's a few kind of Norwegians knocking about in Scandinavia. A couple of, couple in, there's obviously quite a lot of Norwegians in Scandinavia. <laughs> really, quite the, a few. The, um, <laughs> several, a million, several million. <laughs> Literally, nearly all of them. I've, I've only had three hours sleep. Leave me alone. I've, I've spent an awful lot of the evening consoling distraught children oh yeah how did they, how did how did they how did they respond but before you answer that Stephen, because i make i want to make a very quick point about Mikel damsgaard before we before we move on is there ever a human being or indeed a football player who has different age profiles depending on what part of the head that you look at good point yes he does look like a 30 year old his face is a 13 year old mm-hmm. his hair temple upwards 50 year old receding underneath thinning hair but yeah. his face is that of a child Anyway, it's very confusing, but he, he, um, if he committed crimes, though, a portrait artist does have a hell of a job. How old was the culprit? Oh, he's somewhere between 12 and 48. Look at, look at the softness. How are we going to catch him? Softness of his, of his cheekbones. And yet that, where is he going with the start of his hair there? (laughs) 
the, it'll be interesting to see what happens with Damsgaard because he he is a really good player, but this is not most of the smart clubs will recognise that this is not the summer to sign him. That you might sign him in the future. Schick, you can imagine doing another couple of seasons at Leverkusen, and then when a West Ham or an Everton or a, you know one of those clubs, Villa, when they need a, a striker, as they've sold their bid striker to a bigger club, they go and get Patrick Schick because not 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 just their kind of acting out of stupidity, but because they they know roughly how good he is, and he's greeted with a bit more Ferrado than he ought to be because he had a good Euros three years ago. Um, Damsgaard's is intriguing. I, I suspect there'll have been clubs watching Damsgaard, kind of hoping he didn't have a good tournament. Yeah. Whereas now that he's had a good one, and apparently Sampdoria are asking 35 million euros, the really smart clubs will be thinking, well, no, we'll wait until next year when his value's dropped, well, and then we'll him sign him. Because yeah. the nobody's watching Sampdoria. Stephen, tell us about your children, sorry. Yeah, so I, I, the, the one, if you're looking for the silver lining to England's penalty defeat it has helped me out a little bit in terms of managing expectations going forward because Rory 10 sat watch we, we watched it with friends from school including an Italian family it was actually a great occasion very sort of jubilant for them disappointing for the majority of us Rory was distraught absolutely distraught and it has learned as far as I'm concerned a valuable lesson the lesson that I learned after the quarterfinal of the World Cup in 1986. And George, who kicked the ball around with his mates, George is seven, so didn't really become engaged with with the game until until the penalties. But we'd popped in to see Hugh on the way to the house where we were watching the game, because they were very close by, uh, to say hello, mainly to Bodie. And we just had a joke with the boys that if, if England go true to form in terms of their major final appearances, the the young child that they are currently cradling in their arms will be a 55-year-old man <laughs> next time that England reach a major basically chinch. Final. Yeah, basically it's chinch. Basically, the next time but England get to a final, like you'll be chinch. God, that's a sobering thought. So some quick maths went on in the, in the boys' heads and Rory was like, oh, no, I'll be 65. And George was like, they realised, oh, I'll be 62. After the game, as we were getting ready to leave this, this house that had been in hosting us, George had disappeared. And we found him hiding away on, on a climbing frame in the garden, which had a sort of like, almost like a, a tree house on it where you couldn't immediately spot, spot the children. And Katie went over to, to grab him and asked him why he was quite so bereft. And he, all he could say was, I'll be 62. Though, is it? it's, it's, not funny. it's funny but it's not funny it's not so, funny. yeah bleak bleak and lesson learnt boys embrace it this is life going forward because don't uh, the the one final hot take i don't fit it i don't have the confidence at the moment that this is the start of something there are too many other nations in europe on an upward curve to feel as though england are suddenly going to be in a position at the 2022 world cup and 2024 euro to be considered amongst the favorites it feels like spain are going places germany will be revitalized if italy can find an, a, a replacement for for chiellini and bonucci they will they will be a, a, a nation to fear going forward so i haven't quite got the this this is the start of something. It felt like such a missed opportunity. But I think that's. I think that's right. I'm. I'm kind of halfway, halfway along with that. I think that England will be a contender in 2022 and 2024, and they will be one of the teams that goes into the tournament with the chance of winning it. 
But the one thing that's always held England back is is its utter failure to realise that other nations have footballers too. And, and it's <laughs> yeah. ones indeed. that might might be getting better. They've got yeah. players who are getting... Yeah, well, who are, well, or indeed national anthems. Pedri, Pedri's quite an example. Like, like Phil Foden's obviously a, a, like a, a transcendent talent, a wonderful player. But like Spain have got a player who's just as good, and and that happens. Like it might, so it, it might be that Italy struggle in to replace Chiellini and Benucci, and I think certainly one of them might retire from international football. But but maybe Alessandro Bastoni at Inter will turn out to be really really good. Maybe they'll change system and just do something different. Maybe they'll find a player who's so good in attack that they have to that they have to change the way they play anyway. Like football changes, and you have to understand that that no matter how all you can do is your bit. And that the other countries are trying to do their bit as well. So it might be that, yeah, in 2022, England will definitely be a, a team who can win it. But so will Brazil and so will Argentina and so will Italy and Spain and Portugal and France and Germany and Holland and maybe even Belgium. And you, there's no guarantees. And I, I, do, I do think England forgets that occasionally. Well, you mentioned Pedri as an example of someone who had a, a phenomenal tournament and played a large majority of it. A lot of those that England will point towards as having an influence in 18 months' time, in three years' time, the likes of Foden, Sancho, Bellingham, mm. didn't see a great amount of game time. And you know, I suppose Bellingham and, and Pedri offer a, a relatively close comparison in that regard. It is time for Nevermind Jack and Ori, What a Soccer Story. This is Andy Tells' tale from his playing days or broadcasting days with all adult behaviour and libel where the details removed. If you guys are in the mood for a twofer... Give me a hell yeah. Hell yeah. Well, I've got a cracking couple of stories for you here, but a couple of Arsenal stalwarts I'm going to talk about here. So, Euro 2020 slash 2021 semi-finals, England against Denmark. I'm clearly there. It's a huge occasion. Myself, Peter Drury, going to absolutely nail it as we normally do. Um, a guy wanders up into the into the press area where we're working from, broadcasting area. He's got a bit of a beard and he's got a bit of a, a bit of a peaky blinders hat on. So and, and a mask as well. And I, initially, I didn't realise who it was. When he took his mask off, still wasn't sure. Took his uh, peaky blinders off. I realised it was Lee Dixon. So Lee Dixon, naturally, I'm a bit of a, a, a broadcasting magnet. Over he comes, like shavings to the magnet, and we start talking about soccer and about talking about the occasion that's in front of us. And Peter Drew is there. So we chatted when I was saying, look, that this, you know, a big semi-final like this, let alone a final, I'd be absolutely terrified. I was a very nervous person, player. I said I'd have gone completely into my shell and this would have been the most horrendous situation for me to be in because I know what I'm like. And I said to, to Lee, obviously, you've a lot more success, a lot more England games than I ever had. Were you any, anything like that, the human side of it? Did you get affected? And he said, domestically, he said, not, not a problem playing games for Arsenal. It's absolutely fine. But he said there was one England game that he played where he, he'd been in the squad for quite a while. I think he got 30-odd caps and then he was kind of ditched for a bit. And then he was brought back into the England fold for one game and it was a match against France in 1999 at Wembley. I'm sure, I think I was in the squad for this, but unbelievably I was injured and, and missed it. It was a good job too because the French team was extraordinary. And... Lee said that on travelling to the game, he was so, so nervous because he hadn't played for England for such a, a long time that he was, he was worried that he wouldn't actually be able to get off the bus to actually take part in the game. Which again, it just makes you think about these footballers that we see and we think because of all the training and the lifestyles they have that it is all just, 
it's just another football match. It wasn't for me, and I was really surprised to hear Lee talk so openly about it. And he was he was saying again I played, and it was a France won two 0 and it was it was a really difficult occasion for him. But off the back of that, he was talking about the game itself. Nicolas Anelka scored twice in this game. It was a star-studded French team, so they they were always going to probably win the game when you look at the England team, especially with Martin Keown in it. But Martin Keown got ripped a fresh one, football in turn, <laughs> by Nicolas Anelka, who scored twice. Now, they're Arsenal teammates, remember. And Lee told me that apparently this game was a, a midweek game on a, I think it was a Wednesday. Apparently on the, they had a day off. And then on the Friday, apparently Lee Dixon turns up at the Arsenal training ground and Martin Keown is stood by his car in the car park. So Lee says to him, enjoy your day off. Yeah, yeah, great. I said, what are you, why aren't you inside? What are you doing here? He said, I'm waiting for Nicholas." And he said, Nicholas and Elka. He said, yeah, yeah, when Nicholas comes in, I'm going to have a word with him. And he said, why? He said, well, we got a big game tomorrow and you made me look stupid on Wednesday. What the hell were you thinking about? But that was Martin's mindset completely. He felt another, he played against another country. Yes, this, and Elka plays with him for his team, but he's a Frenchman. He's not an Englishman. And he gave him apparently pelters when he turned up saying, you just embarrassed me there. And I've got a big game to play tomorrow. You've knocked my confidence doing what you don't what was I meant to do what missed the chances to make you feel better so he can beat Burnley tomorrow but that is just Martin Keown all over that must have told you the stories when he asked he asked me at half time when we were both having a slash go to the lavatory how do you think I'm doing this is not the time Martin at the urinals to, to really dissect your first half performance he was so that is Martin Keown he was waiting for his teammate to berate him for running him ragged in an international game because they had a big game, a club game at the weekend. So there you go, a two-for-one story. Lee Dixon, Martin Keown, my great footballing friends. I'm sure they'd say the same. Keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate, and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find me for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Stephen, to Rory, and to Andy, and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another Set Piece Menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Chinch, for a moment there, I thought you were going to... Um say that Martin Keown had asked you to rate his performance at the urinal. <laughs> I'm surprised he didn't, to be honest. Do you think, do you think what do you think to my aim? The, the trouble is, he could have had a very solid first half, and I said on a, you know, a footballing point of view, but actually, you've, you've not really, you know, you've not really hit the enamel with any great force there, and walked away. Martin would have been devastated. He'd have drank more water to have another wee to improve his, his urinal performance to take into the second half. He was, let's say he was, he was a driven personality, Martin. He's a I'm nice driven. man, is Martin. He's, He's a, a nice very man. nice man. He is, but don't get on the wrong side of him. I've also had uh, a good thing about uh, Keown berating somebody over the way that they consumed water to quench their thirst. In the, To rehydrate, you should sip rather than guzzle. That's and true. Per- and this person was, was, was drinking water at a rate which Martin Keown disapproved of and felt was worthy of from, ex- from experience, whenever <clears throat> Martin opens his mouth and gives an opinion, just agree with him. It's just a lot simpler. Snooker players it saves do that, on they? bruises. Snooker players do, do, the, do the sipping thing because you notice that they, they sit down after a, a long break at the table. They sit down in the, in the corner of the, of the suite or the conference centre how dehydrated do you get playing not being funny it isn't but I understand yes you meant to sip not gulp but how hot are the lights that you need to really rehydrate okay it can be a long break you can be at the table for a good what five minutes plus if you're Bill Werbenick you've had about eight pints during that frame so you need to rehydrate not too many Bill Werbenick's about now still Bill Werbenick's still about or I don't think so no oh, anyway, but again they, they don't look like Bill Werbenick anymore do they snooker players I've heard that a lot of snooker venues they actually use tanning lamps now rather than normal lamps <laughs>
that's why it's a wash with Dale Winton lookalikes. <laughs>